Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale. On this episode, we are joined by Ken Lane. Ken is the creator of Desert Oracle Magazine and Desert Oracle Radio, uh, the voice of the desert, as he likes to call it. And by creator, I mean he's the editor, founder, host, writer, uh, distributor, like the guy. He is the guy behind Desert Oracle and uh, has developed quite the following due in large part to his unique and distinct perspective on all things desert in California, the Mojave Desert, Joshua Tree, a little bit of the Eastern Sierra. Uh, Desert Oracle is his chronicle of desert stories and Desert Oracle Radio is his uh, (laughs) one-of-a-kind dive into desert stories, desert lore, desert folks, and desert culture. Ken is actually winding things up with Desert Oracle magazine. The final issue of the uh, Desert Oracle will publish in 2023, so I wanted to get a chance to catch up with Ken about the magazine so far, what he's learned, why he even started it, and what the desert tells us about California more generally. Ken is a fascinating guy uh, whose work I followed for quite a while. In fact, he and I kind of ran in the same circles for um, a bit when he and I both worked for Gawker Media at the same time, and he was doing a lot of writing and editing for The All uh, the late lamented website, the all, and, uh, I did a couple pieces for them, but I was always, uh, excited to see Ken Lane's byline pop up. Like what's Ken up to now? And I, only now am I getting the opportunity to you know introduce myself and talk to him about that time of his career and how it just really kind of, uh, wore him out. Um, and I related to that quite a bit. So he, um, just packed up and, turned desertward, as you might say, and started focusing on the kind of print, uh, kind of analog version of what he wanted to do as a chronicler of the California desert. Hence, Desert Oracle, which has been a print magazine, of course, a radio show. It's also available as a podcast and also as a book. Um, It kind of anthologized a lot of the, the magazine's work. It came out last year. It's available now. You can find it anywhere. And he is actually going to read an excerpt from the book at the start of our conversation. So you can look forward to that. Uh, really quick, before we get to that, just a quick congratulations to the Los Angeles Rams. Way to go. We have a Super Bowl champion in the state. That's awesome. Right there in Inglewood. The thing I don't understand is that the, the Rams evidently won the Super Bowl in Los Angeles at their home stadium. But according to the way that the NFL works and how it's designated with the conferences, I guess that the Rams were the visiting team. So uh, they won a road victory at home to win the Super Bowl. So um, that's another uh, kind of fluky California thing that I think uh, it will probably never happen again. You know, the home team winning the Super Bowl as the road team. I just wanted to say that because it's it's baffling to me. If you have any idea what that means or how it happened, please let me know and email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I could use all the help I can get with that and most other things in life. But yeah, whatever. Let's go ahead and get on with the interview. I am so pleased to have Ken Lane here. Again, he's going to start with an introduction from his anthology Desert Oracle, Volume 1, and then we'll get into our conversation. So without further ado, here is me with Ken Lane on What is California. Enjoy. Ken Lane, welcome to What is California. It's so great to have you here. I want to talk about you, your California story, but first I would love it if you would read for us from Desert Oracle, from MCD, FSG, Picador, out now. Ken, why don't you take it away? Within these pages are many mysteries of the desert. Some are cruel and terrible and others sublime, and a persistent view remain inexplicable by our current metrics of understanding. Desert is wilderness strip bare, and when left alone is creation and perfection. The landscape is vast and visible, the geology raw and exposed, the plants and animals in ideal proportion. Fresh water is generally in limited supply, but that has never stopped life from thriving in lands of little rain. 
Our own species has always been fond of these harsh, arid places. The first civilizations rose up from desert sands. Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, the Hindus' valley. The wilderness of antiquity was wild desert. And that's where our philosophers and prophets went to meditate on mountaintops, to abandon society for a while and sleep under the stars or within limestone caves. Through a combination of accident and intent, much of the American desert remains mostly intact, mostly wild. The accident was in the claiming of so much American territory by the U.S. federal government in the mid-1800s. Actions taken to prevent competing claims and occupation by Spain, Mexico, France, England, Russia, all our old imperial rivals. Places with surface water attracted settlers, despite the heat and the sandstorms and the scorpions, while the vast walls of mountains and expanses of dry lakes and valleys were spared much permanent development. This was followed by dramatic efforts to preserve and protect these desert ecosystems as national parks and monuments in federally designated wilderness, actions inspired by the nature mystics of American transcendentalism. In the 21st century, conservationists aim to save what they can of entire ecosystems, not just photogenic islands of flora and fauna surrounded by industrial mining and eroded cattle range. Even without the dense forests we associate with the crucial storage of carbon on this planet, wild desert forms an immense carbon sink over a third of our planet's landmass, from the ancient aquifers beneath the parched surface to the vast networks of microbiotic crusts that bind the desert together. This is a simplified explanation to a complex question. Why is so much of the American desert held in public trust? And it is not intended to negate the intentional horrors visited upon indigenous cultures, the wide-scale extermination of desert species, or the determined efforts today by humanity-hating fanatics to reverse our limited protections of this earthly paradise. When you are in the great desert wilderness, you must carry some understanding of why it's still that way, why it's so contrary to the numbing sprawl of our current civilization. Is the way it is because people spent lifetimes fighting to keep it that way, suffering more defeats and victories, because when you love a place, that is what you do. If this landscape affects your soul in this manner, you may have no choice but to join the noble and holy effort. We could use your help, whether you become a park ranger or join the Green New Deal Conservation Corps or volunteer a couple of times per year to clean up a nature preserve, or lead school kids on backcountry hiking trips. You might even need to become an outlaw, a hero. We are not so far away from the old times of adventure, of great deeds. Do not fall into the trap of anxiety and emptiness. There is purpose waiting out here for anyone who comes in honest pursuit of it. Uh, revelation in the desert is available in our time. It may fit a practice or theology you bring along with your water and your walking stick and your beer cans and your yoga mat, or it may shatter your psyche entirely. Both are worth the effort and worth the trouble, worth going where a few others travel, worth leaving behind the dull comforts of tourist resorts and constant connection. Some people see the face of God, whoever she is, blasting light beams into their brains on a desert highway. Some people fall off a boulder and spend days wondering if they'll live or die. It's always one or the other. I have witnessed pure wild joy in a fellow human's face simply because there was no telephone signal available. No electronic map display to show the nearest cluster of coffee and hamburger chains. Freedom, finally. Out here, beyond the robotic grip of a civilization in disarray and despair, I promise you will feel human again, if only for a little while. Should this experience of old wonder appeal to you, then you will be back as often as possible, and you may have no choice but to call the desert home. And if it's home, you have no choice but to defend it. There's nothing more fun than a purpose in life. That's Ken Lane reading from Desert Oracle, available now from fine booksellers everywhere. 
Ken, welcome again. It's so good to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your California story. Are you from here originally? And if not, how and when did you get here? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm not from here, but I've been here for now most of my life. Um, I'm from New Orleans. That's where I was born and raised. And I moved out here uh, with my family in... 1979, I think. Might have been 78. So what part of California, I guess specifically the California desert, do you call home today? So I'm in, uh, what do we call this place? The, the, the Joshua Tree metropolitan area, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I'm in the Mojave Desert about three hours uh, east of Los Angeles. And I came out here for the first time when I had my, my driver's license originally, which was about 40 years ago, and thought, uh, this, this is a place you know, for me. Why? Oh, I think I blame it partially on San Diego. My dad was grew up and uh, was was raised in in Arizona and Phoenix in the late 40s early 50s and it was not as comfortable as people can make it now you know, they, they didn't have air conditioning they had swamp coolers by the time he got a little a little bit older and he he did not care for the desert he would have liked to forget about it completely. And because he'd been in the Air Force out in Southern California, uh, what March was the base, uh, semi-decommissioned now, it's uh, in Riverside County. He would go to San Diego on the weekends, and he loved it. He thought it was paradise. You know, San Diego in the 1950s was uncrowded, uh, beautiful weather, not a lot of people live there. And he'd go down and hang out at the beach and race motorcycles and you know, otherwise do things you can't do anymore. So by the time we got there, it was just kind of a suburban uh, um, hellscape. And I did not care for it. So uh, to his uh, uh, chagrin, you know, I ended up falling in love with the desert. And I just, I like the space. I like the, I like a mythological landscape. You know, uh -huh. if you can figure out how to live in a landscape like that for, at least for my temperament, that's, that's everything. Yeah. And you know, in the introduction you just read, you kind of attest to the, the permanence of the landscape and how little of it changes. But I'm curious how much of that particular area where you live has changed since you first encountered it, and I guess how you feel about those changes. Well, sort of uh, concurrent with the work I've been doing the last uh, eight years, this part of the desert has, has become attractive to a group of people much larger and of much wider interests than the people who used to be drawn out here. We're kind of desert rats who, when they'd say, oh, I'm going to the desert, people would say, why? You, know, you got a body to bury? You know? <laughs> right. So that has, that has changed. Just, I live here because I, you know, I have kids. They're in school. You know, I need some elements of, of civilization, but it's, it's not ideal for me. And as it gets more crowded and more like everywhere else, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the, the day is marked on my calendar when I get to get out of here, which is coming up in a couple of years when my kids are out of high school. Where would you go? Oh, uh, deeper into the, the desert. Hmm. I, I have, a, I have a place, uh, that's off, off grid as they say, although nothing's really off grid anymore. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to, uh, Starlink internet satellites and green energy and and everything else, but it it is and it uh, 
I think I'll manage to finish off my life without it becoming a, a tourist mecca. What is your earliest memory of California? Is disappointment a memory? Sure. So I guess my earliest memory is disappointment. Uh, because my dad had really oversold it. And I was quite happy living in New Orleans. I kind of had my uh, my high school years sort of tracked out. I had a I had kind of like an art school in the Garden District where I was going to go to for high school, which was going to start up. And but the economy was terrible, and uh, and they couldn't really get ahead. And so, like a lot of people, you know, Americans used to move a lot. That's why so many Americans moved to California in the '50s, '60s, and '70s. And I was at the tail end of that. So. I just remember thinking this, you know, this is it. What do you mean this? Like, what did you see? What did you experience or encounter? Strip malls, you know, stucco houses uh, that all looked the same. It just, it didn't seem to have any, uh, especially when you're a kid where I lived. I was used to walk into the French Quarter or the Central Business District or just from home, you know, or hopping on a bus or a trolley or whatever. So I didn't see the attraction, I guess. I like extreme weather, you know. I like weather that changes. Uh, So over time, what I realized was what I didn't care for was heavily developed uh, coastal suburban slash urban uh, California. And... So that's why it was such a, a, a beautiful thing when I got my learner's permit and started taking my car out into everything that's beyond that, which is just outrageous. The Eastern Sierra, uh, the Mojave, Death Valley, all of Inyo County, the High Sierra, the John Muir Wilderness, the Ansel Adams Wilderness. So I you know, we're very lucky here that so much of the state is is public land. Pretty much everything from the other side of where you are in Sacramento all the way to the Nevada line. And that's one of the great uh, wilderness areas of, of the earth, as you know, people like Ansel Adams and John Muir and Mary Austin uh, made the... the sort of focus of, of their work. I often ask guests who some Californians are who've influenced or impacted you and who you are. It sounds like those are a few of the, the names that you might mention. Are there any others in addition to Ansel Adams and John Muir and Mary Austin? Uh, sure. Uh, Robinson Jeffers of the poetry I like. He's my favorite. Uh, that kind of mythological narrative verse that takes place in this wild California landscape of stone and sea. And uh, Did I say Mary Hunter Austin? Yes. That's a book I've reread a lot more times than I assume the first time I read it, The Land of Little Rain. Because when I first read it, I was still a kid, and I thought, eh, I don't know. This is kind of... <laughs> <You know? laughs> It's it's a more gentle uh, book than a lot of stuff I liked when I was a kid. But over time, it's just oh, just it's it's a poem. It's a it's a book about culture and landscape that's you can read as a a narrative poem. Steinbeck was one that you know you learn in high school, and that kept coming back to me. And there's there's stuff of Steinbeck that I've returned to that's considered minor works um, to a God unknown is my favorite Steinbeck book, which is just an utterly pagan book of sacrifice and desolation and uh, uh, love. It just really overwrought. (laughs) Well, the new journalists were really California writers. I know there's a few who weren't like Tom Wolfe, 
But Tom Wolfe's most important stuff was all done in California, so who cares where he's from? You're right. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so Wolfe, uh, Joan Didion, of course. Were you a Hunter Thompson guy? Yeah, yeah. Very tied to the desert. I love Hunter. Um, he changed my life. How? I was going to go into television initially. I was so unhappy in suburban San Diego. You know, my parents finally kind of clawed their way up out of the working class and moved to a nice suburb with a nice new school full of white kids and alligator shirts. And I thought, it'd be great to escape, you know, this. So we'd been there for all of a few weeks, and I figured out I could go to a magnet school in downtown in Barrio Logan and learn the stuff I was interested in, which was radio, television, uh, print journalism. They had a whole uh, broadcast media school there. So I ended up doing TV, and I was pretty good at it, and I was interning at the NBC affiliate and everything. And then when I was 18 or 17, I guess 17, I came across at the same time Edward Abbey and Hunter Thompson. Um, and suddenly I thought, well, this is, this is much more exciting than doing TV news or whatever. This is a revelation. So I read it, you know, I read everything by Thompson. Um, and then I got to meet him and hang out with him, uh, for a day when I was 19, um, for my my girlfriend's college newspaper. And she and and the other editor, we were all roommates together. I didn't I didn't go to college, but they did. What college? San Diego State. They got a phone call from the events manager or whatever, the uh, guy who booked the bands and stuff who came to do the, the shows at, at SDSU. And he said, hey, uh, we got the writer Hunter S. Thompson in a hotel in Mission Valley, and he wants he wants the arts editors, because he doesn't want to talk politics, he wants the arts editors to come over and interview him. And neither, neither of them had ever read a word of Hunter Thompson. Around what year was this? 84, 85, mid-80s. And he wasn't writing that much anymore. He made his living doing college appearances. They'd pay him 10 or 15 grand to come in, fly him in, and he'd sit up there at a table and, and mumble and answer questions and insult people. So they said, you like Hunter Thompson, why don't you come with us? And I said, sure. So I went, and we went to the, the Radisson in Mission Valley, and he was hanging out by the pool and sat down had a wonderful afternoon talking, you know, talking about books and literature and current events and music and everything else. He was very, very, very charming, very entertaining. And then he went off and did his show. I was playing music at the time. I had a show that night, so I didn't see that. And he apparently, you know, embarrassed himself. So I still have the cassette. Of the interview? Yeah. <laughs> it was a 90-minute cassette. Is uh, 90 minutes of mumbling. Um, what exactly is Desert Oracle, and how did it start and get to where it is today? So between being a kid studying and at a trade school, basically, to be a journalist, uh, and 2015, eight years ago when I started Desert Oracle... I had a you know, career as a, a journalist for the most part. Um, and the last 10, 15 years of that was spent doing online, uh, starting in the 90s, in the late 1990s. And um, by 2011, 12, 13, I wanted out of that world. I didn't like where it was going. I didn't like the page view metrics. I didn't like the clickbait. And I wanted to do something that was analog, that was print, 
and I wanted to do something about what was important to me, where I lived, what, what mattered to me. So I thought, well, at my age, I don't have a lot of time to do a whole lot more reinventions. And I thought, let's, let's just do it. Do what you want to do. Make something print, and I can sell it locally at least. And that was kind of the idea. How did the name Desert Oracle come to you? Well, I believe heavily in, in you know, synchronicity and uh, coincidence and meaningful coincidence and, and uh, accidental wisdom. You know, California has an incredible newspaper history. And there are all kinds of great newspapers um, with interesting names that are now defunct, especially Gold Rush era stuff. So I was looking at names of Gold Rush era newspapers in the West, and uh, a, a number of a number of papers were were called the Call. So initially, it was going to be the Desert Call, like which I thought, well, that's got a double meaning because the voice of a coyote is like the the Desert Call as well. But there was still a functioning paper somewhere, I can't remember where, that was still called that. So uh, my second choice was uh, Oracle, because there had been a number of, of papers called Oracle, including the, the famous San Francisco Oracle counterculture paper in the 60s, I think that lasted through about the mid-1970s. And that, that's kind of cool, and there's a double sort of meaning in that Edward Abbey who's the most important uh, desert writer of the past 50 years, he, while he didn't actually live there, his claimed address that's given in all his books, his later books, is Oracle, Arizona. Now I thought, ah, oh, that's nice. That's a little nod to, to Ed. So that's how it became Desert Oracle. And over time, it's gained other meanings, I think, which... I like, uh, but it's in the tagline for it, the slogan, because all, all the great papers used to have slogans, was the voice of the desert. And it was a you know double meaning because it's a coyotes and it's a newspaper slogan. Let's take this kind of one property at a time because there's the zine or the magazine, which is soon to conclude publication. Yeah, next, next year will be the last issue. Right, and there's also the, the radio show. Right. What makes... A compelling, the type of story that you want to tell uh, in Desert Oracle. The stories I like to tell have a a sense of of fate and mystery and time to them. I think that's that's something that goes across all the the sorts of articles. I don't like dry stuff about the the prose in the magazine is intentionally dry, but when I say I don't like dry stuff like I, I don't want to have something about you know Colorado River levels or something that's important that's other people's work that's not my work I like personalities and that can be personalities that are singular and in the desert that can be the landscape itself a place like Death Valley for instance the personality of Death Valley is the immense otherworldly space that you're in that affects everything, that affects how you go about things. Unless you're on the golf course in Furnace Creek, in which case it's pretty pretty dry. Uh, not really exciting. So I'm, I'm looking for characters. The animals I like are characters. Coyotes are the ultimate character. You know, the, the trickster of... Western North American religion going back thousands of years. Ravens are characters. They're gossips and weirdos, you know. What about the people? The harder it is to live in the desert, the more interesting the people. As soon as it's easy, it doesn't matter. Uh, people who move to Vegas or Phoenix because the tract homes are cheaper they may encounter some of the desert in the course of living there, like Las Vegas running out of water or it being so hot that you get 
serious burns on your hands from touching your steering wheel in Phoenix, that kind of thing. But when it was hard to live in the desert, it attracted people who did not want to be surrounded by other people and the, the more uh, everyday aspects of, of society. People who were perhaps like repelled by the complacency of the more modern desert life, I guess, the more comfortable desert life. Sometimes, yeah. And, and sometimes because they were on the run, because they killed somebody and they wanted to hide out or they'd gone broke and they wanted to start over. How can we overlook that? It's a vital part of uh, desert culture. It, it really is. I mean, most, most desert settlements were started by people who had left some sort of disaster. And uh, they were not welcome in the more welcoming places. You know, uh, once once all the good land went after the gold rush on the west side of the Sierra, then who's left? And you know, the people who end up in a place like Darwin or Ballarat or something around Death Valley uh, a century ago, or Rhyolite on the Nevada uh, California line were people who were marginalized in, in every way. So how did you develop a way to translate these stories and these ideas to the print publication that you so desperately wanted to produce to, you know, get away from the, the digital churn? Well, in, 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 in one way, for that exact, exact purpose, to get away from a churn of content and to make something that felt like you ought to take it outside and read it by a campfire, that you ought to, if you manage to escape civilization, you're in your little cabin, your homesteader in the, in the desert somewhere. And I also made it pocket-sized, so you'd put it in your pocket, and you carry it out, and it'd be like a map in your pocket, and you could read it at a bar easily. You know, so you can't read a newspaper at a bar because you have to open it up, and you hit this guy and this gal. So there were a number of elements in it, and just the look of it itself. I love small press publications like guidebooks and that sort of stuff. So it was made to to evoke those as well. On January 18th, you announced that the magazine would cease publication. Uh, there's going to be four more issues, then you're going to wrap it up in early 2023. What led to that decision? It's mostly time. I do all these things, and I do them all pretty much myself. And the magazine has fallen behind for years now, I haven't been able to, you know, keep up. It's been erratic. If you look at the history of small publications, it's a very common track because they're usually put out by one or a couple of people, and over time, you just you can't you can't keep up. You know, you look at you look in the staff box of of something like the the triple a westways magazine or something and they've got 50 people in there and there's only a handful of features and a bunch of ads about you know a cruise to hawaii or whatever so i had talks with a bunch of people other publishers about either purchasing the magazine part or doing it in partnership and it's now, I've been able to live off of it, but that's not how publishers look at things. They look at things like, oh, how can we expand this and how can we squeeze more out of it? So a corporate publisher, especially in our, our era of media, doesn't have any interest in holding on to a subscriber base or anything like that. So it's just, it's time. You know, it'll be, uh, it'll be nine years by the time the last issue comes out. I'm very happy that it's inspired a number of uh, similar eco-regional publications across the United States. There's the Islandia Journal in Florida. There's one in uh, 
uh, I met some people. Uh, I just did a, a tour of the radio show around the country kind of right before things started to close down again. And I met some people who started one in Lexington, Kentucky, about like haunted Lexington, Kentucky, weird history and folklore and fables and stuff. So that's that makes me happy. And I'm, I'm still, I'm not closing any doors on it. If something happens in the next year and a publisher could take it on and put it out on a regular basis, I'd very much like that and would very much like to still be involved with it. What you were just saying about the the Florida or Kentucky kind of heirs to the Desert Oracle um, idea is emblematic, I guess, of the fact that your publication is not just for people in the desert. It's for people anywhere who are interested in the desert and maybe the idea of the desert. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah. It's from the beginning. It is only really in, in the last couple of years with SoCal people discovering kind of their backyard during the pandemic that Southern California, which includes the area that I'm in around Joshua Tree National Park, started making up uh, as big a chunk of the readership as other parts of the country, you know, the subscriber base. We've always had a, a real strong subscriber base on the East Coast and the Pacific Northwest. And there's also Desert Oracle Radio, of course. Uh, what, what exactly is the radio show and how did that grow out of the magazine? Two years after the magazine began, I went into our local radio station here in Joshua Tree, KCDZ, and I had a meeting with one of the owners. It's a husband and wife owned the station, family-owned. One of the few that's still family-owned. And I said, hey, I'd like to do a show, and it's going to sound something like this. You know, here's a little demo of it. And he said, well, it sounds real weird. But he liked the magazine, and he said, go ahead and try it. So we try it. It runs Friday nights. You know, it's a late-night station. So it's a combination of the stuff that's in the, in the magazine and things that are more audio-based. It's real sound-rich. Uh, there's a guy who goes by Red, Blue, Black, Silver here in Joshua Tree who composes ambient soundscapes for every episode. So it's got original music every week. It has occasional interviews, um, stories, field recordings. Yeah, I, I wanted to make it something that you could look forward to and either put on headphones for or a lot of people write in and say, oh, we like to listen to it outside by the fire on Friday night, you know, sit around and have a drink and listen to the, the coyotes on the show mix with the coyotes outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is this unique sound and atmosphere to it. It's not just your voice or the music like you're referring to, but it's the sound of your imagination kind of um, maybe under the influence of the desert. It's weird. It's kind of alien, but it's timeless, not unlike the desert itself, I guess. So how did the landscape influence the sound? One of my favorite things to do when I was a kid was drive through the desert at night and listen to late night desert radio. Um, one of the people who was on the radio starting in the late 80s in Las Vegas that you could hear all over at night was this guy, Art Bell. And Sure, yeah. His show was just... A, uh, people would call in and talk about weird things that happened to him. He'd read UFO reports... And you're out driving, say, through the Mojave on, um, you know, on 66 through what's now Mojave Trails National Monument or up by the Nevada line or really anywhere in, in the southwest for about a three, four-hour range around Las Vegas where it came out of. You could hear it. It's about the only thing that you could listen to at night on the radio before you had the option of plugging in your phone or listen to Spotify or whatever. So that was just always such a central element of being out in the desert was hearing the spooky radio that I just, I, I never really 
conceived of it beyond, I want to replicate that feel. In the introduction, you mentioned this concept of conserving and even defending the desert. Uh, you actually write, and I, I quote, I'm going to read this uh, in its entirety. I think it, the context matters here. Quote, if this landscape affects your soul in this manner, you may have no choice but to join the noble and holy effort. You might even need to become an outlaw, a hero. We are not so far away from the old times of adventure, of great deeds. Do not fall into the trap of anxiety and emptiness. There is purpose waiting out here for anyone who comes in honest pursuit of it. End quote. I love that. It's so evocative, but it's also pretty thought-provoking and even challenging. Can you elaborate maybe on what type of hero or holy effort you envision in the desert? Mm, I'd rather not uh, because that's going to be different for every person. Um, For some people, it could be a real shake up of their life and the expectations that people have for them if they simply moved out somewhere in the middle of nowhere to pursue, you know, their dreams, whatever they were. And a lot of people who have done that, once they get here, they start to learn that it's not an accident that the desert's like this. You go through the rest of the country, you know, I I spent a week going crisscrossing Texas um, just a few months, a month ago, a month and a half ago, doing shows. And one of the outrageous things you realize, we're so spoiled with the public land we have here in California. You get to a place like Texas and you you can drive a half day between these little state parks tucked here and there. There's Everything's private. So having this wilderness, I think, is, is as crucial for, as a steam valve for society if you're going out to paint pictures of, of jackrabbits or if you're escaping a murder spree. It's important to have a place to escape. It's important for people who, for whatever reason, are on the wrong side of society have a place to go and to, at best, to illuminate a a path for other people like them. So kind of zooming out to the bigger picture, what would you say is the biggest challenge that California in particular faces, or the desert, if you want to be more specific, in the years ahead? And how do you think that challenge can be surmounted? For California, the main the 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 main problem that we face right now is is not a place where anybody can afford to come and pursue their dreams and once you take that out of the equation out of the california legend it becomes a very different place and i think we are in that era already and the fact that population is leveling off in general, not just California, which was just growth, 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 growth for all of all of uh, our time or anyone alive's time. And now we, we peaked. On one hand, we have the affordability thing. People can't afford to move here. People can't afford to stay here. Um, I live in a low-income area, and we're watching it happen. My kids' friends are moving away because their parents either can't afford to stay or can't pass up selling the cabin that they bought in 1990 for $25,000 suddenly being worth half a million dollars. Of course, you, you do that, and you can't buy another place here. you got to go. So they're going. They're going to Arizona. They're going to Texas. They're going to uh, St. George, Utah. Climate-wise, this place has become incredibly difficult to live in. Uh, I love it right now, but the last two summers, I've wanted to slit my throat. Uh, The sky's orange or black with smoke. 
the heat breaking records every year. The air conditioning can't keep up. Uh, during the pandemic, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't even escape to a movie theater or a bar. I mean, it's, I spent a lot of time looking at real estate listings in Scotland. You know? <laughs> so thinking, where do I go next? <laughs> um, so whatever happens here is not going to follow the model of the previous 75 years. I, you know, I hear young people talking mostly through my kids, and they don't talk about being here. Being here in California? They talk about being somewhere else, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but listen, I mean, most days, not every day, but most days, California is still the best game in town. I mean, especially if you're from here originally. I think if you ask anybody who has lived in California, not every part of California, but the the best known parts of the state, if they can, this is where they'd be. Even with the climate changing, usually the climate is fantastic. It's wonderful to have a place where you can be outside so much. Uh, it's wonderful to be in the place where kind of things come from. You know, all over the world, when people buy their iPhone every 24 months, when it's time to stop working, they get their little box, you know, designed in Cupertino, California. Same with movies, video games, uh, things that, uh, I mean, I, I did not uh, quite expect to live to the day to, to see uh, Venice Beach where you would never park your car because the wheels would be gone when you get back. Uh, rechristened Silicon Beach. Hopefully in 20 years, once most of the boomers are gone, there'll be a bunch of real estate that opens up here. It'll uh, The schools aren't going to be very crowded. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll have to see. We end every episode of What is California with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? Oh, li living? Past or present? Past or present. I'm going to go with Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose Bierce made a template for a kind of American writer, an American journalist, writer, who was very present uh, in in society, both publicly and privately. And pretty much everything I've thought of as really interesting and striking about the California of a century or so ago, Bierce is involved there. And he always shows up. He's involved with the Hearst Papers. He's involved with the movement of Civil War veterans to the West Coast, which totally remade California. He's involved with the uh, with uh, socialism, uh, with the uh, socialist groups uh, like London and Mary Austin and the people who congregated in Carmel around uh, Jeffers. And uh, he's involved in uh, the Mexican Revolution, um, one of them. Maybe that's, maybe that's how he died. No one really knows for sure. I was going to say, whatever happened to Ambrose Bierce? Where did he wind up? Did he like run off and join the military? Or am I thinking of someone else? Bierce was 72 years old. And he wrote a letter to his daughter, and he said, I'm tired of dealing with the newspapers. I'm tired of dealing with the crooks of the Bay Area. I'm tired of dealing with um, America's uh, sort of crush everything for the sake of business expansion. And I'm going to go join with Pancho Villa and be a revolutionary in Mexico. Right. And so he was last seen... Uh, down by the uh, Rio Grande and uh, uh, around the Big Bend of Texas. Well, there's about 10 places he was last seen, but that's mm -hmm. the most likely one where he crossed. And nobody knows what happens. Uh, there are a number of places that claim to be his final resting place. Um, he's just a, a wonderful character. 
Ken Lane, Desert Oracle. Thank you so much for being here. It's great talking to you. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Ken Lane from Desert Oracle. What a guy, right? That was awesome. Thank you so much to Ken for appearing on this episode of What is California? And thanks to you, dear listener, for checking this out as always. Episode 19. That is a wrap for us. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the newsletter on Substack at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That'll get you a free episode of the podcast in your inbox every Thursday morning and a free roundup of cool weekend links. Those are uh, nifty California stories in your inbox every Friday. You can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would always love to hear from you. Thoughts, comments, questions, feedback, love notes, hate mail, all of the above, or something else I haven't even thought of yet. Please go ahead and send it to me. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You can support What Is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia if you want to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running and keep our headquarters cat fed. Please, please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What Is California, please, please, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. And that's going to do it from What Is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.